Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, October 11th, 2023, the 994th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So let's review a bit what we've been discussing this week. We obviously had these events over the weekend that we've been shown. These events in Israel, Hamas has attacked Israel and its people. And while many people are responding rationally, taking a measured approach, trying to make sure that what they're seeing, all the stuff that's on TV and in the print media and on the Internet that is making them feel angry and confused is actually real. 
first and foremost, that they are able to understand it in a proper context, extract the proper meaning and decide only then what it is they support having done in their name. Other people just want to see millions and millions of people incinerated. A huge all out war engulfing the entire Middle East. Hey, why not? It's exactly what some people have always wanted. Extremely evil people on multiple sides of this issue are wishing death on the other side. The most brutal, all-encompassing death. The more death, the better. That is essentially what we've heard on the internet now for the better part of five days. We talked about how the commentariat on both sides of the Uniparty immediately shifted into high gear, accepting the entirety of the central narrative and each and every official story within it and immediately calling for the same reaction. They wanted to go to war and beyond anything else, they wanted to make sure that a speaker of the house was named immediately. The best choice being to simply place Kevin McCarthy back into that role so that we could immediately help Israel in quotes, however we needed to. And we discussed the incentive and punishment structure around Repeating the slogans, supporting the official story, supporting the central narrative. You have to get on board. You have to repeat the story. If you question the story, you will be subject to emotional and reputational attack and damage for certain because the central narrative must be supported. It must be the only thing that people are allowed to think because if people think anything outside the official story, outside the central narrative, then people are not going to make the right choices. They're not going to come to the right conclusions. And we've been told in the past that reaching the wrong conclusions means we must have been misled at some point. Therefore, the people who spread that information that steered us off the proper course, well, they were spreading mis and dis and malinformation. And so then they can be censored. That's how heavily they have to protect these narratives. They need the emotional and reputational damage to get people to go along with them. They need the people's compliance and consent at all times. Otherwise, the whole project stops working. We talked about how behind all of this, the process of selecting a new Speaker of the House has been playing out. And just this morning, the Republican conference voted the majority of the conference voted for Steve Scalise to be the nominee for the next Speaker of the House, and then it will be brought to the House floor for a vote. Scalise beat Jim Jordan 113 to 99, so that is only 212 Republicans voting. They're going to need 217 on the floor voting for Scalise if he is going to be the guy without any Democrat help. So he's got a lot of convincing to do. This process could play out for a while. I do kind of like the fact that it's not immediately Jim Jordan being rubber stamped first by the conference and then by the House at large. I've said I want the process to play out. Will this lead to not having a speaker at all? I don't know. Matt Gates said that he is going to support in the floor vote that candidate who achieves the majority within the Republican conference, whether that be Scalise or Jordan, Matt Gates would go cast his vote for that person, keeping the motion to vacate in place. He's using that as a bargaining chip. If they want his vote, that motion to vacate has to stay in place or he needs other concessions 
from the establishment in order to get his vote. And so that's good. We'll see how this process plays out. If it is not completed to the regime's satisfaction quickly, we are going to begin hearing about how all of MAGA is anti-Semitic because they need a speaker in that role to be able to give money and weapons to Israel, etc. Now, yesterday we talked a little bit about what the sides were and how the regime will be running both sides and supporting both sides and using both sides to create the narrative that will get them what they want. And we can see that in action, of course, right now. And if the regime is controlling both sides and funding both sides and arming both sides and both sides are ultimately supporting the agenda of the global regime, then both sides are in some way the same side. They are just set up in a controlled opposition dynamic, much like MSNBC and Fox News, much like the Democrat Party and the Republican Party. They show the public that they are adamantly opposed to one another while really working toward the same thing. And then the public aligns themselves with what they perceive to be these two sides, while both of those parties are explicitly working against the public. It is only when we see them and begin to understand them as part of the same project that we can understand what the sides really are. If all of these parties are working together to push a regime narrative forward and it's all done for the benefit of the regime, well, who is all of that actually against if they're all working together? And the answer is anyone who opposes the regime. The regime's ultimate goal is control over the world through a one world global governing body borderless countries. It's all the same thing. The people out there are all very equal, not compared to the people on top, of course, just compared to one another. And they can be shifted around the world to work wherever they're needed. If you're opposed to that agenda, then you are the enemy. And this story, this event, and everything that comes from it is going to be targeted at diminishing the power of that side, your side. The side of sovereign individuals supporting sovereign nations. And it is only through looking at these situations through that lens, rather than the controlled opposition paradigm we are given from the authoritative source, that we can actually see what's going on. And so I want to continue examining the stories that are being pushed out, the official stories within the central narrative. I want to continue examining those to see where the divisions between the global regime and sovereign citizens and sovereign nations actually exist in this situation so that we can learn about what's actually going on rather than simply taking the experts word for it. Now, if we can be objective about this for a second, and I know that a lot of people can't because of the emotional attachment to some of these narratives, and some of that is entirely justified, but as a thought experiment, Let's try to be objective about this situation and ignore who the parties are. If you're able to do that, you should be able to see pretty quickly that what has occurred over the last five days, what we have been told about what's occurring over the last five days, in many ways mirrors the approach from the Russia-Ukraine thing. 
We are seeing another iteration of that, and we will see another one with China and Taiwan. We have certainly seen all of the narrative seating necessary to set that up. Now, if you'll think back to February 2022, March 2022, there was a lot of incentive. There was a lot of emotional and reputational punishment and damage that occurred for anyone who would contest the Ukraine narrative as it existed in public. Everybody was changing their emojis and chanting Slava Ukraini. And they were calling Putin a dictator. And they were saying very brutal invasion. Anybody who contested the central narrative was called a Putin lover. We weren't being patriotic because for some reason that they couldn't describe, the United States had a major stake in the outcome of this border dispute between Russia and Ukraine, this border dispute that had been going on for a thousand years, this border dispute that was already well underway because there was an ethnic civil war being waged by the Ukrainian regime who Joe Biden, Barack Obama and Victoria Nuland helped install with CIA trained Nazi battalions. You couldn't say any of that. You couldn't argue with the regime or else you were about to get punished. If you can't see the parallels between that and this, I don't know what to tell you. I think you might not be looking at the situation objectively. And I understand evangelicals have a serious attachment to the biblical Israel and all that means and the conflation that the regime has attempted between that biblical Israel, that holy land, that place of God's people, and the globalist proxy state whose borders they drew in the wake and aftermath of World War II, that conflation. For people who are bought into that conflation, this is extremely important in a way that goes beyond normal political calculations. Maybe they could look at Russia, Ukraine objectively or China, Taiwan objectively, but the Israel thing, that is a different level completely. And the same, of course, is true for people who are Jewish or identify as Jewish or have been told they are Jewish or have Jewish relatives or friends or whatever. An emotional attachment based on ethnic affiliations that lead back to that region and that people. Now, all of that is totally understandable, but it's not objective. And it's okay that it's not objective. People aren't objective. People react with their biases, with their emotions. That's totally natural. But we should at least admit that it's not objective and carry on from there. People who have greater stakes in the outcome are less likely to be objective. It's normal. But let's move outside of politics and this situation altogether and think about what's happening here. Let's say there's some situation, some decision that you have to make in your life that has major emotional stakes for you. You might think that you are thinking through a process rationally and coming to the right conclusion. But if we are mature people, if we are clear thinking adults, we will realize that when the emotional stakes for us are huge, we're probably going to have a tendency to rationalize our way to the conclusion that feels most emotionally satisfying. This is the easy route. This is what people do. Now, sometimes the emotionally satisfying conclusion is also the right conclusion and 
it's wonderful when those two things align. But that's not always the case. We might talk ourselves into that being the case so that we can go ahead and do the thing that is emotionally satisfying, the thing that we want, whether or not it's the right decision. But that's not clear thinking in the real world. The thing for us to do in those situations, and hopefully we have the opportunity and the ability to do that. But the thing that we should do is look to people in our lives who we trust, who we know to be looking out for our best interests when thinking on our behalf and when advising us. And we would go to them and say, hey, you know, I have a lot of emotion wrapped up in this issue. Here are the facts. What do you think I should do? Now, if you're getting good advice from those people, then they will be looking at the situation in a way you might not be able to. They might not have the emotion about the situation that you have, which will allow them to think more clearly about the situation. And upon receiving their counsel, you might think of your decision a little bit differently. This is smart behavior. This is something that is wise to do at every possible opportunity. Get some more opinions about what it is you're thinking of doing. If the decision you're making has important consequences, get a second opinion. Ask around, hey, where is my lack of objectivity causing me to have blind spots or causing me to go too far in one direction when I should be going in the other direction? That's a totally normal thing to do. That is a good process to undertake. This is what clear thinking, rational, responsible adults should be doing. Is that what we're seeing online? Of course, it's not. We are looking at a total inversion within the false reality where the best thing to do is that thing which is most emotionally satisfying, regardless of the potential consequences. We are actually told that it is anti-Semitic. It is potentially hateful to attempt to be objective about the situation because the magic words have been spoken. They have told you that this situation goes beyond anyone's questioning. There is only one way to view this. It is the way we're told to view it. And anybody who chooses not to is going to be the target of grave emotional and reputational consequences. This is not a good way to think. And again, I'm not faulting anybody for their lack of objectivity, for their biases, or for their emotional responses. All of those things can be entirely justified. They just also happen not to be the best way to reach proper conclusions when it comes to a situation of great importance, especially one as complicated and filled with obvious disinformation, conflicting information, and falsehoods. This is not a situation that calls for an even more emotional response. In fact, no situation calls for that. It is always bad. It is good to be in touch with your emotions. It's good to consider your emotional response. But we're not children, and that cannot be the only way we operate. The emotional impact of what we're shown on TV does not make it real. It does not mean that we should respond in a certain way just because the images we're seeing or the stories we're being told make us feel more scared or more confused. And we're seeing already how important that is. You will remember back in the early days of the whole 
Russia-Ukraine thing, the very brutal invasion, Putin's brutal invasion. We were told that bioweapons labs were a lie, but that Chernobyl might fall into Russia's hands. And some people got scared of that. We were told Russia was attacking the Zaporozhia nuclear power facility, but Russia wasn't attacking it. Russia was operating it and Ukraine was attacking Russia as they operated it. We were told that Russia slaughtered 13 prisoners of war on Snake Island. That turned out not to be true. We were told that the ghost of Kiev, the fighter pilot, the famous Ukrainian fighter pilot, had taken down all sorts of Russian fighter jets. And that was video game footage. We were told about a woman rushing her baby from a maternity hospital where Ukraine's forces had set up in violation of international law. Every story we were told that tugs at the heartstrings of the people turned out to be either partly false or completely false. Many of them just made up from nothing in order to manipulate people's emotional responses. There is nothing about this situation that should tell any intelligent person that couldn't happen again or that isn't happening again. It is happening again. We know it's happening again because it happens in every single situation. The regime has a story to tell every single time. They are going to use their media mouthpieces to tell that story. And then the people online are going to push that story and push what that story should mean to you if you don't want to be punished. And then you will go along with their interpretation. You will encourage the forwarding of their agenda and their system continues functioning. All they have to do is engage the emotions of the people. They have to put enough confusion and fear and paranoia into the hearts and minds of the people. And the people will then do absolutely whatever the regime tells them to do. It is a repetitive process of the infliction of trauma and the response to the trauma. And for pointing these things out, people like me receive a fair amount of hate. People don't like hearing that the thing they got really, really emotional about happens to be fake. And when stories about things being fake get too big, the regime tries to apply the emotional and reputational consequences to get people to stop talking about those things. But we have to do that. You see, we have to be able to call things fake when they are fake because we do not want to be people who are affected emotionally by fake stories to the point where we will then support atrocities around the world. The regime operates on our consent and we are giving them the consent for atrocities based on videos and stories and images online that make us upset and fearful and confused. Think about this as if it was an open public negotiation and they were telling you what they were doing. If they said, hey, you know what? We would like to absolutely bomb the shit out of the Gaza Strip and eliminate all Palestinians. We don't actually have to kill each and every one of them, but if we kill most of them, we're okay with that. What do you think? Will you let us do that? Will you give us your permission to go bomb the shit out of the Gaza Strip and maybe bomb the shit out of Iran. You'd be like, uh, no, guys, no, of course not. I mean, we saw what you did in Ukraine. Why would we give you permission to do that again in the Middle East? 
Do you know the history of the Middle East? How long do you expect we're going to be there? You told us it was going to be shock and awe. And then we ended up there for 20 years. So no, I I don't think that we are going to give you permission to go bomb the shit out of the Gaza Strip and then Iran. And they come back and they say, okay, well, what if we show you video of a desert rave that we will call a peace party? And it's going to be just pretty young people dancing around, happy, just having a beautiful, happy day. And then, and then, terrorists on flying go-karts attached to parachutes are going to land at the peace party and they are going to threaten everybody and kidnap a bunch of the prettiest girls. Then can we bomb the shit out of the Gaza Strip and Iran? Is it cool at that point? And you're like, guys, come on. That is a pretty extraordinary story. Are you sure something like that could happen? And they're like, yes, we are absolutely going to tell everybody that that's what happened. And at that point, a lot of people will be like, okay, yes, you've got me. By all means, go bomb the shit out of the Gaza Strip and Iran. Well, we would say, ah, gosh, I don't know. That story sounds uh, impossible. I mean, doesn't Israel have like the best defense forces in the world? Isn't it like one of the most highly secured plots of land in the entire world? How are they going to get go-karts attached to parachutes to fly in and do this whole desert rave kidnap the models thing? That doesn't that doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't think I'm convinced to let you go bomb places. And they said, well. What if we told you a story about one of those girls and we said that she was kidnapped and then sexually violated and then driven around in a truck after all of her limbs had been broken to the point where her body was all mangled? I mean, there isn't any blood or bruising, but the body is just displayed in ridiculous ways. It almost looks like it is a rubber dummy of a girl that we're being told is this actual girl from the desert rave and all the guys in the truck are doing really terrible things to this poor girl's corpse. Would you then allow us to bomb the shit out of the Gaza Strip and Iran? And a lot of people saw that and they were like, this is so reprehensible. Okay, you have my permission. Go bomb them. Let's start an entire war that engulfs the Middle East. 10 years, 20 years, doesn't matter how many. However many lives it costs, however much money, take it all from me. Take it all. I can never watch another video like this again. You have my permission. But a lot of us would sit back and say, hey, you know, that doesn't sound quite right. Are we allowed to ask questions about this? Oh, no. Okay, well, then we won't ask questions. But we're going to have to point out that this doesn't look anything like a human's body. And we're going to have to wonder if this is what happened to this particular girl whose backstory you have now laid out for us. She feels like our new best friend. Don't get me wrong. Great job you've done telling us this woman's story. But what if she's just still alive and this didn't actually happen to her? I have a much harder time going along with this whole bombing campaign, this war that engulfs the entire Middle East thing. If this video that makes us scared and confused just happens to not be entirely real, like it has to be entirely real for me to even feel these emotions and give this video credit as some reason why I would allow you to bomb the shit out of the Gaza Strip and then Iran. Like if the video, for instance, wasn't real, 
then I would actually think that I'm even less likely to allow you to go bomb the shit out of the Gaza Strip and Iran if you're showing me that as a reason why I should allow you to do it. You see, that makes me think that you don't have any real reasons and you're just showing me these ridiculous stories in order to hijack my emotions and make me go along with something terrible without thinking. And they say, oh, well, you're quite clever. I get it. Okay. But you see, the thing is, we are going to bomb the shit out of the Gaza Strip and Iran, but we do need your permission to do it. So we're going to keep trying. What if, let's say, what if we told you that 40 babies had been beheaded by Hamas, that group that we started a while back, but now they're totally rogue, that group. If they beheaded 40 babies, then would you give us permission to bomb the shit out of the Gaza Strip and Iran? I mean, at some point, you got to be like, wait a second, you're just telling me about these 40 beheaded babies. I am supposed to believe you because producing that evidence would be so sickening that no one can ask for it, knowing that you're not going to give us the evidence for our own good. So for our own good, we can't see the evidence, not that we want to, but we're just supposed to take your word for it. Okay. Well, that, you know, that's kind of a tough one. I mean, the paraglider thing, at least you had video for, I mean, sure it's ridiculous and there's no way that that story's true. And the girl in the truck thing, you know, that girl who's definitely not dead and that body in the truck that didn't actually look like a human body. I mean, at least you had video there. I could kind of try to convince myself that what you were saying the video showed was what really happened in the world. But the beheaded baby thing, you're just telling me I have to take your word for it because it's so serious. But you see, I can't do that because you have lied about absolutely everything else for just years on end. I cannot remember the last time I was told the truth by anyone representing your political ideology or your media organizations or any of the corporations or any of the politicians. I can't remember when any of you told the truth about anything. And now you're telling me I got to trust you about 40 beheaded babies just because you said so. Well, that doesn't make sense. And of course it doesn't make sense. Max Blumenthal from the gray zone tweeted on this a couple of times. He wrote so far the lone source for the claim that 40 babies were beheaded and or killed by Gaza militants was Nicole Zedek, an Israeli state-sponsored media reporter citing quote-unquote soldiers. She's since issued a clarification stating that the death toll is quote-unquote unknown. And then he also said, so this story has been retracted by the LA Times and the Israeli army has officially disowned it. Perhaps it's time to question the other propaganda set pieces Israel has deployed to falsely paint itself as the victim and drag the West deeper into its war of extermination. Now, I don't have to share Max Blumenthal's opinion in that last part. I don't think this concoction is by quote unquote Israel. It's by the regime element in Israel and the regime element elsewhere. They're all participating in creating the same global regime narrative. So we don't need to blame this false story on Israel. But the important part is that it's false. 
Charlie Kirk spread this and made it go viral yesterday. He said they found bodies of 40 Jewish babies, some with their heads cut off. Pray for Israel. You gotta wonder what's going on in Charlie Kirk's head. Jackson Hinkle responded, breaking Israeli army tells Andalou News that they have no information confirming allegations that Hamas beheaded babies. And Hinkle called for Charlie Kirk to retract and publish a correction. Earlier today, quote unquote, conservative influencer Greg Price, and I don't have anything wrong with the guy, but this is very bad, tweeted, breaking Israel is now being invaded from the north by Hezbollah terrorists reportedly crossing Israel's border via paraglider, just like Hamas did in the south. There's officially a second front in the war. And not long after, Deleted my tweet because it was a drone attack from Hezbollah and reports of an all-out invasion are unconfirmed. So we had a second paraglider entry. That was what went out across the news. People couldn't figure out that the first paraglider thing was fake news, so they went for it again. But oh, they figured out it was fake the second time. Have they figured out that it was fake the first time yet? Of course not. And the crazy thing at this point is that someone will be like, well, how do you know it's fake? Did you, did you prove it's fake? Yeah, I proved it fake. You were told something by the television. You were shown a video of a thing and told what it was. The story about that thing makes absolutely no sense. There have been no new details forthcoming. There have been multiple proven lies associated with it. There is absolutely no reason to ever believe it was true. What could be more fake in the news than that? I cannot present something that shows you how and why that's fake. And you have to understand the roles here. It doesn't matter how many people believed the paraglider story or what news sources reported it. It is something that cannot happen the way they told it to you. It is preposterous and ridiculous. The preposterous, ridiculous claim that cannot happen is the one you're supporting by believing that's real. So you prove that it's real to me. And at that point, I will say, yep, I was wrong. It's not fake. The default position on this issue is that it did not happen. It is an extraordinary and preposterous claim. It should require overwhelming proof for belief. Not one video online of go-karts parachuting into a music festival. Now we have videos claiming to be of Hamas paraglider attackers missing the mark, hitting a power line, hitting a building, and their paraglider attack go-kart explodes or crashes or something. And we are supposed to pretend that all of this is real and these paragliding go-karts evaded Israel's defenses. And while we're at it, I might as well mention this. Everybody's been talking about how BLM, Black Lives Matter, is standing in solidarity with the people of Palestine. They released a statement to that effect and BLM Chicago on Twitter, tweeted a picture of a man hanging from a paraglider and out of the paraglider 
is a Palestinian flag on a pole. And it says, I stand with Palestine. BLM Chicago tweeted this. And you got to almost think that someone must have taken over their account. They actually used a picture of a man paragliding and a Palestinian flag off the paraglider. The whole thing is comical. Michael Seifert, who started the company Public Square, which seems to be a good company, and I wish Michael Seifert luck, but a terrible point he has made. He writes, when you see BLM blatantly supporting terrorism against Israel, never forget that America's largest Fortune 100 companies donated thousands of dollars to the BLM Global Network Foundation. They include Uggs, Amazon, Gatorade, Microsoft, Warner Records, Intel, Xbox and Microsoft Games, Nabisco, Square Enix, Lululemon, Airbnb, Unilever, Dropbox, and a whole lot more. And he's, of course, right about that. But most of those very same companies also support the regime in Israel and are part of the World Economic Forum. Many of them have their own DEI initiatives. All of them are fully regime-oriented companies. So it's odd to use their support of BLM in the course of supporting Israel, who they also support. While Israel, as they supported the globalist proxy state Israel in the evil twin faction, that's what they support. They also support BLM. These are two organizations of the regime that work on behalf of the regime. And these companies, of course, support both sides of that. So you can't really knock them for supporting Israel's enemies while they are also supporting Israel. And in truth, both supporting the same thing of which Israel and BLM are a part. We need to recognize this divide everywhere. We need to recognize the existence of the global regime. It does not make sense to continue to see things the old way and analyze them the old way. That is a recipe for always being wrong. And naturally, for most people who actually support the regime, they don't care about being wrong. Being wrong doesn't mean that you analyze the situation incorrectly. Being wrong means you said the thing the regime did not want you to say. The regime will always say you were wrong and they were right. And people will believe that they were right because people believe the regime. Therefore, you will be wrong forever, even though you analyze the situation correctly. Why? Because it's a false reality and right and wrong exist only in relation to that false reality. What's right is to support that false reality. What's wrong is to oppose or expose that false reality. Now, as you might imagine, there was not a whole lot of quote unquote leadership coming from the fake White House since Saturday. They put out some statements here and there. They made a joint statement with President Macron of France, Chancellor Schultz of Germany, Prime Minister Maloney of Italy, Prime Minister Sunak of the United Kingdom, and of course, the fake President Joe Biden, expressing their steadfast and united support to the state of Israel and their unequivocal condemnation of Hamas and its appalling acts of terrorism. The fake President Joe Biden gave a speech yesterday afternoon. And as you might imagine, the GOP establishment is praising Joe Biden's speech. Imagine understanding that your fate was tied to the fake president, Joe Biden, the man the conservative establishment 
helped to usher into the office of fake president. Remember when the GOP establishment, when Con Inc., when these Ron supporters are all complaining about the sorry state of the world and trying to score points against the Democrats, always remember that there is no greater supporter of Joe Biden than these people. The country would not believe Joe Biden ever could have possibly been the president if it weren't for these people helping the regime cover up the fact that our elections are stolen. That is why they are supporting Ron right now, despite Donald Trump having almost 60 point leads in some of these polls now. They're not supporting Ron because he will oppose the regime. They're supporting Ron on behalf of the regime. And their alignment on these sorts of issues is exactly why they preferred the fake president, Joe Biden, over having Donald Trump and his America first policies controlling things for another four years. These people are absolutely responsible for the mess we're in. And because of that, their complaints are actually about themselves. If you are pretending that Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes and is a legitimate president, you are a Biden supporter, period. It does not matter which policies you support. It does not matter who you voted for in the past. It does not matter how much you identify as a conservative. You literally support the usurpation of the United States of America. Elections are stolen in broad daylight. All anyone has to do is notice. Everyone who has noticed is never going to forget where these people stand on these issues. And it's strange that they're even willing to take this risk. But the truth is they don't realize it's a risk because they think that everyone who matters agrees with them. But that's not true. And they're going to find out it's not true. As you might imagine, they are supporting Joe Biden in his position relative to this Israel issue. Again, this is why they were willing to support him. But imagine having your fate tied to Joe Biden and his ability to convince the nation about a certain course of action by speaking. Joe Biden literally has to talk America into going along with all this nonsense. Joe Biden has to do that. This is the slapstick comedy portion of the show. Imagine this as some sort of Weekend at Bernie's sequel. In the sequel, the guys have to get Bernie to convince the nation to go to war. And in this analogy, by the way, obviously, the guys holding up the dead guy and having him go through all the motions, that's establishment Republicans. That's Ron supporters holding up the dead guy, hoping that he can convince the nation to go to war based on these upsetting videos and stories and images online. So I'm going to play a couple minutes of Joe Biden's speech yesterday. This is his attempt to convince the country that the official story is entirely true and that we need to be prepared to respond however necessary on behalf of Israel as they refer to it, the globalist proxy state. You know, there are moments in this life, I mean this literally, when the pure, unadulterated evil is unleashed on this world. The people of Israel lived through one such moment this weekend. The bloody hands of the terrorist organization Hamas, a group whose stated purpose for being is to kill Jews, 
This was an act of sheer evil. More than 1,000 civilians slaughtered, not just killed, slaughtered in Israel. Among them, at least 14 American citizens killed. Parents butchered, using their bodies to try to protect their children. Stomach-turning reports of being babies being killed. Entire families slain. Young people massacred while attending a musical festival to celebrate peace. To celebrate peace. Women raped, assaulted, paraded as trophies. Families hid their fear for hours and hours, desperately trying to keep their children quiet to avoid drawing attention. And thousands of wounded, alive but carrying with them the bullet holes and the shrapnel wounds and the memory of what they endured. You all know these traumas never go away. There's still so many families desperately waiting to hear the fate of their loved ones, not knowing if they're alive or dead or hostages. Infants in their mother's arms, grandparents in wheelchairs, Holocaust survivors abducted and held hostage. Hostages whom Hamas has now threatened to execute in violation of every code of human morality. It's abhorrent. The brutality of Hamas, these bloodthirstiness brings to mind the worst, the worst rampages of ISIS. This is terrorism. But sadly, for the Jewish people, it's not new. This attack has brought to the surface painful memories and the scars left by a millennia of anti-Semitism and genocide of the Jewish people. So in this moment, we must be crystal clear. We stand with Israel. We stand with Israel. And we will make sure Israel has what it needs to take care of its citizens, defend itself, and respond to this attack. There's no justification for terrorism. There's no excuse. So the fake president sounds quite upset. He is describing Hamas as pure evil. And he was really going after them. I haven't heard him go after anyone more than he just went after Hamas, except for MAGA extremists who he describes in far worse terms than he just described Hamas. Now, you might have heard Joe Biden incorporate the fake story about the babies into his remarks. Now, we can assume that some media figures are easily confused by this propaganda and by these fake stories. And we can accept, sadly, that most of our quote unquote elected officials could be easily tricked by videos online as well. But are we supposed to sit here and pretend that prepared remarks for the fake president prepared by his staff and then repeated by him in front of the nation? Are we supposed to pretend that they didn't have enough access to information to be able to confirm these false stories before repeating them to the nation as a justification for everything they want to do in the future? Why is the fake president falling for fake news? He listed a series of atrocities. He called them brutal and abhorrent and talked about the traumas and the bullet holes and the shrapnel wounds, parents covering their small children with their bodies, women raped, assaulted, paraded as trophies. This is terrorism, he says, but it is nothing new. 
The fake president says we are surging additional military assistance, including ammunition and interceptors to replenish the Iron Dome. We're going to make sure that Israel does not run out of these critical assets to defend its cities and citizens. He says, my administration has consulted closely with Congress throughout this crisis. And when Congress returns, we're going to ask them to take urgent action to fund the national security requirements of our critical partners. This is not about party or politics. This is about security of our world, the security of the United States. Well, that's interesting because I haven't heard anything about how this will directly affect the security of the United States. And of course, we won't be hearing anything about that. The one way we will hear about it is that it will increase the chances for terrorism in the United States. That is what we will be told. Same as after 9-11. If there is terrorism in the United States, it is because of what's happening over there. Therefore, we need to go to war over there to prevent terrorism over here. We have already played this game. We have already heard these things. We have already discovered that they are lies. How many times do we need to hear that the authorities and the intelligence organizations were aware of the terrorists? We're told when they thwart terrorist attacks, but never told about the fact that they were setting up the attacks in the first place. And beyond those staged events in our country, they don't really have another way of making this about us. Oh, wait. Oh, it's the nuclear weapons. That's what it is. They're going to get nuclear weapons that will destroy the entire world. So now we need to be scared enough to do the war they want in the Middle East. How convincing is their real reality-based case if they have to incorporate fake news elements from the central narrative. Why do we have a fake and illegitimate president standing up before the country talking about slaughtered babies and parents using their bodies as human shields for their children? Why are we pretending that because this issue is serious, the fake president can speak on our behalf? And at what point should we begin to find it odd that the conservative establishment, conservative incorporated, the GOP elites, the Ron supporters are now aligned with Joe Biden? We're being told by people across the political spectrum that what we need is a bipartisan agreement on a path forward regarding Israel. And that is what they are working toward. That is what all of these stories within the central narrative exist to accomplish. The emotional manipulation of you, the manufacturing of your consent, is so that their bipartisan path forward is supported by the people. And we give them their consent because they have now shown us enough images, enough videos. Please just make all of this stop. You can have the war you want so long as you don't show us any more upsetting videos. Now, yesterday we talked about the intelligence situation. We were told that Israel was informed by its Egyptian partners of the potential for an attack like this from Hamas. Now, Benjamin Netanyahu says that's not true. That's fake news. He was not warned. The global state propaganda media seems very convinced that he was and very motivated to sell us the narrative that he was. And at the same time, they have been running a color revolution against Netanyahu. They are trying to get his position on the makeup of the judiciary reversed. We have talked about this on the podcast for a while. And we are told that the Israeli defense forces told him 
that if he did not reverse his position relative to the judiciary issue, something like this could happen. He says that's not true. Now, this is described as a warning to Netanyahu about the potential dangers, but it really does sound like a threat. Either do what we say with the judiciary or there will be an attack and you will be held responsible. It seems to me that that's the stage we're in right now. And let's go just another step with that, because they don't only want to blame Netanyahu here. They eventually want the blame to fall on Trump and Russia. Tom Hartman, a communist radio host who is quite popular and has been around for a long time, said on Sunday, Hamas apparently knew how to get around Israel's Iron Dome defenses. They probably learned this from Iran. Iran almost certainly got the information from Russia. And who gave it to Russia? Sure looks like it was Donald Trump at the request of Putin. And he links to a Washington Post article from back in 2017. And I'll get into that article in just a second. But think about what Tom Hartman is laying out here. Hamas learned how to evade Israel's defenses from Iran. Iran got the information from Russia. Russia got the information from Donald Trump. And that was true six years ago. Therefore, it's actually Donald Trump's fault and Netanyahu's fault for this attack ever taking place. It was Trump giving intelligence to our enemies and Netanyahu failing to respond when he was warned. May 15th, 2017, Washington Post, Trump revealed highly classified information to Russian foreign minister and ambassador. And this is back when all the regime communists in the media were freaking out because Donald Trump had a White House meeting with Sergei Lavrov, who is Russia's foreign minister and the Russian ambassador to the U.S., Sergei Kislyak. Now, you'll remember that Donald Trump was accused of giving classified information to the Russians. Again, Donald Trump is the sole plenary authority as president on what is classified. He can unclassify things at will anytime he wants. He is also explicitly tasked with conducting our foreign policy and setting our foreign policy. Donald Trump as president has every right to have discussions with Russia's foreign minister and Russia's ambassador from the article in the Washington Post. One day after dismissing Comey, Trump welcomed Russian foreign minister Sergei Lavrov and ambassador Sergei Kislyak, a key figure in earlier Russia controversies, into the Oval Office. It was during that meeting, officials said, that Trump went off script and began describing details of an Islamic State terrorist threat related to the use of laptop computers on aircraft. For almost anyone in government, discussing such matters with an adversary would be illegal. As president, Trump has broad authority to declassify government secrets, making it unlikely that his disclosures broke the law. So it's assumed that The description of his quote unquote disclosures is true, but he also, they admit, has the right to do it. White House officials involved in the meeting said Trump discussed only shared concerns about terrorism. National Security Advisor at the time, Henry McMaster and others said that Donald Trump did not discuss sources and methods. But the Post then writes, 
But officials expressed concern about Trump's handling of sensitive information, as well as his grasp of the potential consequences, exposure of an intelligence stream that has provided critical insight into the Islamic State, they said, could hinder the United States and its allies' ability to detect future threats. So basically, the claim was that Donald Trump shared classified national security information with the Russian foreign minister and the Russian ambassador and Tom Hartman, apparently a communist conspiracy theorist of the first order, believes that Donald Trump gave information to Russia, who gave it to Iran, who gave it to Hamas, and that allowed Hamas to evade Israel's defenses. And thus, Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, and of course, Benjamin Netanyahu are all responsible for this attack. We are presented with the very difficult problem of how something like this could happen, given given the expertise and experience of Israel's defense forces and their superior intelligence and the quality of their national security. Now, obviously, no one can even flirt with the idea that this was allowed to happen or done intentionally. So we need to then explain the impossible without the most likely conclusions as options. We have to redescribe things as a simple intelligence failure. And if there was a failure of some kind, of course, we have to find someone to pin it on. We can't just say there was a failure, but it was no one's failure. So if we're going to pin an intelligence failure on someone, let's have it be someone who's on the other side and kill two birds with one stone. So the failure was actually Benjamin Netanyahu's. He's not going along with the regime's position on the judiciary. So the intelligence failure will be blamed on him. And we will spread the narrative that Benjamin Netanyahu himself has blood on his hands for the consequences. He is responsible for this damage inflicted by Hamas. And also, why not throw in Donald Trump? It is his responsibility too. It has to be a failure by someone. So let's make it a failure by the enemy because no one's allowed to explore the possibility that this was intentional or in any way allowed to happen. So based on how we see things developing in this narrative regarding the intelligence failure, it seems like it's possible at least that Benjamin Netanyahu and the Israeli Defense Forces, as they exist right now, might be on opposite sides of the only divide that matters. Both of them will be described as leading Israel by everyone, but they can still be on opposite sides. Everything is two things, good twin, evil twin, everywhere. I don't know that they are on two sides. I don't know which sides the two of them are on, but we're going to explore the possibility. The IDF, after all, warned Netanyahu that if he didn't change positions, something really bad might happen. And he's claiming that the intelligence Egypt gave to the IDF never reached him. So that indicates that they may be on opposite sides of the divide that actually matters in this situation. This is from The Hill today. Israel forms emergency unity government in response to Hamas attacks. Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Benny Gantz, an opposition party leader, 
announced they have reached an agreement to form an emergency unity government in the wake of attacks launched by the militant group Hamas. The Jerusalem Post reported on Wednesday that both sides came to an agreement after meeting at the Israel Defense Forces headquarters in Tel Aviv. The agreement allows Gantz, a former military general, and his fellow party members to be officially sworn in as ministers for the duration of the war. Gantz will join a security cabinet that includes Netanyahu, Israel Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, and opposition party member Gadi Eisenkot. So Netanyahu and the opposition party leader Benny Gantz meet at the headquarters of the Israel Defense Forces in Tel Aviv and agree that Gantz, a former general, and his fellow party members will be officially sworn in as ministers for the duration of the war so that they participate in this special war cabinet. Israeli Strategic Affairs Minister Ron Dermer will serve as an observer in the war cabinet, while a spot will be open for opposition leader Yair Lapid to join the cabinet, according to the Jerusalem Post. The agreement also states no law should be passed in the country's legislature throughout the duration of the war. So the legislature will not be legislating. No new laws will be passed until this quote unquote war is over. The formation of the emergency government comes after Hamas, a militant group that is the de facto authority in Gaza, launched its deadly attack against Israel on Saturday, which resulted in the deaths of more than a thousand Israelis. Israeli officials have said that more than 150 soldiers and civilians are being held hostage. And we are continually being told that more and more Americans are being held hostage. It was 14. Now it's 22. I imagine we will hear another number later. Maybe that will coerce our consent to go to war, or maybe they'll have to raise it a little bit higher. Will it be good enough when it is 30, 40, 50 American hostages? Then can we go to war? They will just increase the number to whatever it needs to increase to. They might as well keep a running counter on CNN like they did with COVID deaths. There is no need for them to substantiate that number, and you're not allowed to question it. They have said that there are this many hostages. If you don't immediately believe them, then you are insensitive to the plight of these hostages and therefore a bad person and therefore must be destroyed. There you go, siding with the terrorists again. Back to the article in The Hill. Israeli armed forces have launched a counteroffensive against the group, with Netanyahu saying that his country's forces will exact a quote unquote, huge price against Hamas for the attack. President Biden publicly condemned the terrorist attacks, confirming Americans are among the many people being held hostage by the militant group and that 20 Americans remain unaccounted for in the country. And again, it's up to 22 now. In this moment, we must be crystal clear. We stand with Israel. Biden said in a televised address Tuesday, noting that the number of Americans killed in the attacks has risen to 14. And we will make sure that Israel has what it needs to take care of its citizens, defend itself and respond to this attack. There's no justification for terrorism. There's no excuse. Now, how do we take this story? Is the Netanyahu side coming together with the leaders of the opposition party in a unified stance against 
Israel's defense forces operating on behalf of the global regime? Maybe, possibly. Certainly don't have enough information to say that yet. Is Netanyahu being forced to give concessions to the IDF and to the opposition party because of what happened over the weekend and because of these stories about how he failed to respond to warnings from Egyptian intelligence and others? Maybe, possibly. We don't have enough information to know yet. Is Netanyahu joining with the IDF and with the opposition party to actually present a united face to the world as they all pursue the same global regime together? Maybe, possibly, we don't have enough information to know yet, but we have to consider the possibilities. We have to figure out what the allegiances actually are and where the lines are actually drawn. We have to figure out who sits on which side of the only divide that matters. And you see, the thing is, we can actually take the time and figure this out slowly, understanding that reaching the right conclusion is better than reaching a fast conclusion. We actually don't need to go crazy and give our full consent to whatever war they want to wage for however long they want to wage it. Israel is capable of responding to this threat and to this event on their own. And if in the future we decide to give our consent to some sort of military action related to this situation, it will be done with our full understanding of what's happening as best we can. Not some snap reaction because we were emotionally manipulated into it. Take a listen to the White House spokesman, John Kirby, the guy who basically sells the fake administration's policies on behalf of the military industrial complex to the country. Did the same thing with Ukraine, the Afghanistan pullout, all of it. That John Kirby. Listen to him as he pretends to cry on television. I, uh... <clears throat> I... Sorry, it's it's very, excuse me, very difficult to look at these images, Jake, uh, and the, the the human cost. And these are human beings. They're family members. They're friends. They're loved ones. Cousins, brothers, sisters. Yeah, it's difficult. And I apologize. Now, however ridiculous that sounded, it looked even more ridiculous. And that video is up on Twitter. I retweeted it today. So you can find that in my Twitter feed if you want to watch the video. But again, why do you have to fake the crying if the emotional impact of the event is real? If the event is real and the emotional impact is real, why are you faking crying on television to convince people that the story is real? Shouldn't it just speak for itself? This is an official spokesman of the illegitimate administration showing everyone that something is gravely wrong with the story that we're being told. They are trying to sell the story. They are using emotional and reputational consequences in order to achieve full compliance with their prescribed narrative. They need to get everyone on the same page so they can coerce consent from everyone. They need the emotional manipulation all the way up. And if the event itself fails to emotionally manipulate people into going along with what they want, they'll create more events. These people ostensibly 
are in positions to know what is happening. And if they know what is happening and what we are being told is happening is real, why are they faking the emotional reaction on television? Now, when all of this is happening, particularly in front of an audience who is increasingly awake by the day, this sort of effort becomes pretty easy to spot. It's a failure. This is pretty obviously a massive public communications failure. The story is not working. They are not able to coerce people's consent, and they really can't afford for this effort to fail right now. It's very difficult for their narratives to work without full censorship. The level of censorship that they had in 2020, 2021, and 2022. Now, Twitter certainly is not perfect. I mean, X, it's certainly not perfect. The censorship is not gone. I personally am very, very heavily shadow banned on that platform, but there is enough on there and it is spreading widely enough for people to understand that a lot of what they're being shown is fake. A lot of people are responding to this beheaded babies thing and suggesting that even normies understand that's not true. At some point, the paraglider thing becomes obviously ridiculous. And these discoveries only lead people to question more. So Thierry Breton yesterday, who is a commissioner of the European Union and has been working on their censorship policies, posted this on X yesterday following the terrorist attacks by Hamas against Israel. And he used the Israeli flag emoji. We have indications of X Twitter being used to disseminate illegal content and disinformation in the EU. Urgent letter to Elon Musk on DSA obligations. Dear Mr. Musk, following the terrorist attacks carried out by Hamas against Israel, we have indications that your platform is being used to disseminate illegal content and disinformation in the EU. Let me remind you that the Digital Services Act, that's the DSA, sets very precise obligations regarding content moderation. First, you need to be very transparent and clear on what content is permitted under your terms and consistently and diligently enforce your own policies. This is particularly relevant when it comes to violent and terrorist content that appears to circulate on your platform. Your latest changes in public interest policies that occurred overnight left many European users uncertain. Second, when you receive notices of illegal content in the EU, you must be timely, diligent, and objective in taking action and removing the relevant content when warranted. We have, from qualified sources, reports about potentially illegal content circulating on your service despite flags from relevant authorities. Oh no, potentially illegal content reported from sources. Third, you need to have in place proportionate and effective mitigation measures to tackle the risks to public security and civic discourse stemming from disinformation. Public media and civil society organizations widely report instances of fake and manipulated images and facts circulating on your platform in the EU, such as repurposed old images of unrelated armed conflicts or military footage that actually originated from video games. 
This appears to be manifestly false or misleading information. And hey, I would agree that is manifestly false and misleading. Who's posting all that stuff? Well, it's not us. It's not those of us commonly targeted with censorship campaigns. These are the regime's stooges and mouthpieces, the attention farmers of the world, the people who are literally paid to attention farm. Those are the people reposting this stuff. It's the same people reposting all this stuff back in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the ghost of Kiev people, the maternity hospital people, the Snake Island people. Those are the purveyors of all this fake information, and they are always doing so on behalf of the regime. Maybe members of the regime are realizing that that stuff is actually harming them. I therefore invite you to urgently ensure that your systems are effective and report on the crisis measures taken to my team. Given the urgency, I also expect you to be in contact with the relevant law enforcement authorities and Europol and ensure that you respond promptly to their requests. Moreover, on a number of other issues of DSA compliance that deserve immediate attention, my team will follow up shortly with a specific request. I urge you to ensure a prompt, accurate, and complete response to this request within the next 24 hours. We will include your answer in our assessment file on your compliance with the DSA. I remind you that following the opening of a potential investigation and a finding of noncompliance, penalties can be imposed. So that is a threat. Censor more, censor what we tell you, or we are going to penalize you. Elon Musk responded on X. Our policy is that everything is open source and transparent, an approach that I know the EU supports. Please list the violations you allude to on X so that the public can see them. Merci beaucoup. Vous merci, Thierry Breton responds. You are well aware of your users and authorities reports on fake content and glorification of violence. Up to you to demonstrate that you walk the talk. My team remains at your disposal to ensure DSA compliance, which the EU will continue to enforce rigorously. Elon responds, we take our actions in the open. No backroom deals. Please post your concerns explicitly on this platform. And it seems that no response from Breton is forthcoming. And again, Breton's complaints were made yesterday. There is no further response from him in now 23 hours. A user named Matt Smith responded, gotta love generic insinuations coupled with threats of enforcement action. Elon answered, I still don't know what they're talking about. Maybe it's in the mail or something. So just generic threats of enforcement of censorship standards within the EU and threats to Elon Musk and the X platform that they must comply with the EU standards of censorship. There must be one cohesive central narrative. They need to get everybody on the same page because otherwise it's impossible to coerce consent. And without consent, they can't move forward. And once again, you see this being the dynamic. They need the consent of the people, the consent of the public. Without it, they can't move forward. What does that tell you? All you have to do is withhold your consent and they cannot move forward. In order to do that, you must be able to navigate the emotional and reputational consequences 
of failing to comply. And if you want to do that in a way that doesn't leave you out on an island that other people can see and other people can join, it is critical to point out that parts of the narrative or the narrative in full are actually false and actually fake. We do not need to be emotionally manipulated by what we see on television or read in the papers or see on the internet. We can look for ourselves and see that some of these things or all of these things simply are not true. And when a fake president repeats them on behalf of the uniparty in order to coerce your consent, you should be even more clear and solid in your position in saying there's something wrong with this and I do not consent. And as they continue to escalate in that emotional manipulation, demanding your consent, recognize it for what it is and say no even more firmly. Because there is no point at which in their escalation of what we are being shown that somehow what they're doing becomes true. They don't lie about the little things along the path toward escalation and then begin telling the truth about more and more extravagant events. That's just not how it works and nothing could be more obvious. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month, comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, 
and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!